Telecast. Hi, I'm Justin Crosby, and welcome to this week's Telecast. On the show this week, I chat with one of TV's best-known executives specialising in the buying and selling of TV formats. From discovering format juggernaut Dragon's Den in 2002 to his more recent conversion of Korea's Grandpa Over Flowers into the NBC top-rated Better Late Than Never, Tim Crescenti has been well and truly at the centre of the world's format business, with a global reputation for finding those hidden gems in unexplored markets. So, welcome to Telecast Tim Crescenti from Small World IFT. How are you? I am doing very well, thank you, and it's a privilege to meet you, to be on the show with you, to actually meet you last month in Cannes, and uh, don't think that I was stalking you, but I was the one chasing you up, my friend. <laughs> it's it's wonderful to, to meet people through the old podcasting medium, and I know you listen to the show, and you're based in where? Nashville, Tennessee, is that right? <sighs> Yes, because that's, you know, the new format hub of the world, Nashville, Tennessee, um, you know, home of country music. Uh, <laughs> and the old line is that if, you know, when you get to, and I'm updating myself here, what do you get when you play a country western music backwards? You get back your dog, you get back your beer, you get back your woman, you get back your pickup truck. But we've had family move here and doing what we do, and we knew this before COVID, um, I can operate from anywhere. And it's more importantly that I'm not in one location I need to be traveling all over the world. So our family's moved here uh, to Tennessee. So now our new home base is in Tennessee. And um, and happy to be talking to you. And, and today's date here in America is Cinco de Mayo. So viva la Mexico. <laughs> now, Tim, I, I want to ask you, what does IFT stand for in Small World IFT? Uh, what those three letters stand for? If I ask Paul Gilbert, my mentor and uh, the senior VP at, at Paramount or whatever they're called today, uh, international, um, he would come up with some very profane um, IFT acronym description. But it's international format television, small world international format television. And we call the small world just exactly how you and I met. I was having coffee in Cannes. I was having coffee. Ole uh, from uh, from Norway was having something more than coffee. And I said, have you ever heard this? This is podcast, telecast. He said, no. And we're sitting at La, La California. And two minutes later, he looks at his phone and he goes, this is the strangest thing ever. I go, what? He goes, well, you just mentioned something I've never heard of before. And I just got a text from a mate saying, hey, you want to meet me at Justin Crosby's telecast um, cocktail party uh, down the street? And I go, and he just kind of looked at me like aliens had just talked to him. But that's, you know, in lieu of having intelligence and a real strategic mind, (laughs) I operate on happenstance, you know, in the word we talked about earlier, serendipity and just, and that's why it's a small world. You can plan things, you can forecast it, but... The opportunity that somehow the universe, and now I sound like a real Californian Zen dude, and that's the beauty of our business. I mean, having the opportunity that, oh my God, we're in one place, and if I want to connect with somebody who's from Japan or somebody from Germany, they're either here or I have one phone call that I can make to a mate and and get to anybody. So I'll I'll get off my soapbox on the beauty of our business because then I can get uh, in the bin box later and talk about the other side of our business. Well, you're right. It is a small world, and the TV and content industry is certainly a small world. So tell us a little bit about 
your business then, Tim, right back to the beginning. How did you get involved in TV? And you know, talk us through your content production and format distribution and acquisitions and sales career up to this point. Okay, well, we can everybody please just uh, you know uh, book up your next five hours, and I will try to delight you with that. But strap yourself in, strap yourself in, and get yourself one or two bottles. But I was an odd child. I know most people who know me are not surprised by that. But at the age of 13, I wanted to be president of a television network. Yeah, most kids in America want to be a basketball player or a singer or you know, the next David Cassidy at the time. And I'm saying, nope, I want to be Fred Silverman, who was the only man who ran CBS Network, ABC, and NBC. And you know, back in the 70s, you had three options. You had ABC, CBS, and, or NBC as a job opportunity. So limited opportunities. I went to college, studied business. There was not a degree that said how to become a president of a television network for some silly reason. I did end up switching to radio, TV, film department and media management. Graduated. My first job out of college was working for Merv Griffin Entertainment, and he is the man who created Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy. So two, you know, two little known titles around the world. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, not only did he create the dang uh, show, he he did the music for it. So he was thinking in all ways possible, how am I going to make money from for eternity and beyond my own eternity? But so did two years working on Wheel of Fortune and then working in the development team, met, became in this as a, a vital person in my career, a man by the name of Paul Gilbert, and he was producing Dance Fever and Jeopardy. We became mates and we stayed in touch and I'll get come back to him in a second, which is why I'm in international television. And then after that, my, it took a turn working on the dating show Love Connection, the original show with uh, Chuck Woolery, which was really I, I not that I'm going to be boasting about love connection, but my lord, it was really one of the pioneers of reality television. And that version of the show, a man and a woman, and yes, this was very outdated. Um, a man and a woman would go on the show, go on a date, and they would then show up on television a couple weeks, six weeks later, and talk about the date. Well, in that interim, writers, <clears throat> sorry, researchers, um, have talked to each one of them and skewed a story in one angle. They don't want, we didn't want people coming on television and say, oh, I had a date with Justin and it was nice. He's a good friend. It's like, not boring. So it either had to be good, you know, as in uh, uh, a shag date or <laughs> incredibly bad. So I remember this one point, and again, in my, my head is my dream of being president of a television network. So we do a week of shows with contestants from New York. And I will have to say that two of the things I kept pushing for a love connection was to have uh, same-sex dates. Um, we did interracial dating. That was something that I, I pushed, and this is in the late 80s. Uh, but we did a show, contestants from New York. We finally were able to go to New York because we were based in Southern California to get contestants. So we, needless to say, New York contestants, larger than life, characters beyond belief. And I remember this one day, there's one show where in the, in the studio in LA, Chuck Woolery is the host on the show. And the question to the man who had gone on the date backstage on camera is, how um, uh, Maria says that she has beautiful hair. What did you think of her? What did you think of her hair, uh, John? And he responds with obviously a, a, a provoked by a writer. His response was, "I've seen better hair on a burn victim." And I'm going, "Ooh, oh!" And the woman, her expression was just like, "Oh." And I felt it. She, we go, she holds it together. We go to commercial break. Chuck gets up to go to the coffee, water, have a smoke or something. And then I see her get up from the couch. She's making a beeline to Chuck. And I go, oh, shit. 
I've got to tackle this woman who's ready to tackle the host of the show. And then I, well, I got there, prevented that from happening. And then I kind of had a thought like, so this is why I'm in television, huh? And that was my epiphany. Like, well, maybe this isn't it for me. And I left that and contemplated open up a window washing service. And then after it took me an entire day to do my in-law's house, and it wasn't a large house by any means, but it was a pain. <laughs> when it, But it took me the entire day. I said, well, this is not going to be cost efficient. And then there was an article in the Los Angeles Times about one of the, my favorite movies, an Americana movie, Field of Dreams, that was with Kevin Costner and James Earl Jones. And it touches upon baseball, yes, but it's more about communication, faith, dreams, belief. And there was an article in the LA Times that uh, people were going to this field in Iowa, a little town called Dyersville of 3,000 people. They were having life-changing experiences. And I went, oh, my God. And it's just a, people who had brothers who hadn't seen each other in 15 years lived in different parts of the country, the world, and magically show up at this field. Couples had been married at home plate, and Hollywood is forever being lambasted for, well, we saw this in a movie, and we think it's okay to lay in the middle of a highway, and we, we know that a truck will can drive over us and we'll be okay. Well, no, that 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 was a movie, so that doesn't really happen in real life. Well, you know what? Reality depicted fiction, and people, hundreds of thousands of people were coming to this little town. Anyway, fast, long story on that, but ended up doing the first thing I ever did on my own was cold calling ESPN, a gentleman by the name of Ron Simeo, who was putting together the first Extreme Games, as it was called then, and then became the X Games. I remember going to his office in Bristol, Connecticut, and on his wall he has these index cards of, you know, shovel slide, ping pong with bananas. I'm like, what in the world is this kind of thing? He goes, we're putting together this extreme sports competition. He commissions a one-hour documentary. We called it Dreamfield, and James Earl Jones hosted it. And it was about the stories of people who have these life-changing experiences caused by a movie. Yes, it was written originally by a, a book by W.P. Kinsella, but the movie was the one that had the impact. And the, you know, the phrase in the movie is, and it's a very Americana phrase, and, but it has, it's, it's worldwide. It's, if you build it, he will come. Well, it actually became, if you build it, they will come. And it's become kind of a phrase uh, of inspiration. And the other phrase in the movie that Kevin Costner here, and for the people who don't know, Kevin Costner, is a, he and his wife are Berkeley hippies in, this, in the 70s. They decide, screw everything, we're going to go buy a farm in Iowa. They don't know anything about farming. And he hears a voice. And for some strange reason, he decides to take out his cornfield and put in a baseball field. Everybody thinks he's nuts, but he's hearing these voices and he's just going with what's internally manifested in himself, much to the chagrin of his wife and the bank and he's going to default on the loan. Uh, but he hears that one of the voices is, is go the distance, go the distance. Anyway, I tell that story in an elongated way, just simply because I went through that and I go, holy cow, I can do what I love, which is make television. I don't have to be grounded in Hollywood. And I'm a Los Angeles person, so I can offend my own brethren. Uh, but um, I go, oh, I can tell stories. We end up having to do the James Earl Jones part in South Africa. He was shooting a movie in Johannesburg, and he had committed to doing the, the role of the host and do the voiceover, which – yeah, you know, 20 minutes amount of work. Well, I get a call as after my wife and I had financed the initial production for ESPN, uh, the total budget was about $130,000. And we put the people coming back to the field and telling their stories. And then stories just magically happen on our own credit cards. 
and we were going to get paid until we delivered the master. And all of a sudden, I get this call from James Earl Jones's agent saying, uh, "Mr. Jones is on, is uh, stuck on a movie." in Johannesburg. They're doing a remake of Cry the Beloved Country with Richard Harris, I believe. And he cannot do your documentary. And I started shaking and sweat. And I'm going, oh my God, I've just, we just financed just everything on this. And now we're screwed. So old school, I poured my heart out in a letter and faxed it. Yes, faxed it to his manager. You came clean and said, this is, this is the score. If you pull out of this. Yep. And he called, I'm in a motel room, a little motel room in Iowa, and I get this call, Mr. Crescenti? Yes. This is James O. Jones. And I, he said, what is it you want to do? And I said, I told him, and he said, I, well, I just, I said, fine, if you want to come to a soccer field in South Africa, I'll do your documentary. And um, and I just kind of went, oh, my God. But his main concern was he didn't want, he said, when I told him what the stories were, a very heartfelt family, Americana, he said, I just want to make sure it wasn't something like a Star Trek cult weird thing. And um, anyway, so did that, learn the international part of it. And then Paul Gilbert calls me a few years later and says, he's now at King World and going or Columbia TriStar International. And he said, we need a flying producer to go set up Wheel of Fortune in Turkey. And I said, well, what do I need to know? And he goes, well, you worked on it for two years, you know, like the back of your hand. I said, great. So I'm all excited. My first business class ticket to Istanbul, um, nice hotel. I get there and I'm all excited. So I go meet with the producers in a tiny, tiny room. And this is Turkey. So remember, everybody's chewing coffee, smoking 20 cigarettes at a time. And I asked them, I said, so what do you want to do with Wheel of Fortune to make it a Turkish show that it has that Turkish feel and without it being just an American retread? And there was a pause and they said, oh, we need to make it a three hour daily live show. And I went, uh, there are three details Paul did not tell me. And cell phones were not that prevalent then. Otherwise, I would have called them up. So I asked them, I said, so what have you thought about some ideas to expand Wheel of Fortune to three hours daily and live? And they said, yes, belly dancers. And I went, oh. Never thought of belly dancers and Wheel of Fortune, but that's an interesting combination. What they basically did, and that's the beauty of a format, they took the DNA. It's still a puzzle board. It's still a wheel. It's still a, a puzzle you have to solve. But in between each round, they would come out with belly dancers. Then go to break, play another round, and then come back with a singer and a dance troupe. So was this before the, t- the times when we saw formats being jealously protected with Bibles that, you know, you couldn't change the format or have belly dancers going in? <laughs> or, or was it just a case of, oh, the deal's done, you can make it however you want, uh, adapt it however you want to work for your local market? There was no no Bible or no sort of you know, terribly powerful brand uh, lawyer looking over your shoulder? You know, it was, it was before that time and the format business before the big boom with big brother and who wants to be my owner and the, I, and, and as you just said, the production Bibles and the, the consulting and the over consulting and you know, your camera can't shift a half an inch because it says so in the Bible, it has to be like that. But the format business wheel of fortune had been going in the eighties and the, in the nineties being licensed to, to other territories. I mean, dating game, uh, that Chuck Barris created in America in the sixties was blind date in the UK with Scylla black for some seasons and it was also on and i don't know i think at the peak 22 other countries so formats were going along but to to your point yeah it was a little bit under the radar and especially you kind of thought that there were certain places you kind of thought well 
Turkey's not quite as high profile as UK or you know or France, and no offense to Mark Turkish friends um, at all. But um, they, and so I was one thrown. And as a format consultant, you were there to make those decisions that if part of the set they want to turn it red, but the production details in the Bible say no, it can't have any red on the set because in our country that that red represents a certain um, a feeling, but in their country it's yep. a positive feeling. So you make those decisions on the spot. And after right. the wheel of fortune with belly dancers, it also did create, this is about 1997, but it expanded the format to give it more options of the old phrase of, um, you know, we can scale it up, we can scale it down. Well, if you want the simple a strip show, five half hours a week, we can produce those in one day. If you want a three-hour daily live variety show. And that also became, in Italy, uh, their version of Wheel of Fortune, hosted by the greatest name ever for a host, Mike Bongiorno, who was so popular as a host that the Pope came to his funeral when he died in the early 2000s. So that's pretty good. You get a Pope to come to your funeral. Uh, but that, that set the tone for... Paul and, and Columbia TriStar at the time, before it was Sony International, and John Feldheimer and Michael Grindon and Andy Kaplan and Paul Gilbert um, all saying, "Yes, we want to bring, we want to beef up our our team here because, as I said, we had Dating Game, Blind Date, we had Wheel of Fortune, we had, we had old school formats, and now we're looking at 1998, and now the format explosion is about to take off. Bring us a little bit more up to date, then, Tim, with Small World." Well, first of all, tell us about the, some of the mega formats that you were involved with. I, I, and I know Dragon's Den is one of those, and also uh, Grandpa Over Flowers, which is, uh, I believe, a Korean format that was adapted. But first of all, tell us about Dragon's Den, how that came about. Well, I was based in L.A., but of course, traveling 30% of the time. But I think Sony, at that now Columbia Sony has bought Columbia TriStar, it's now Sony International, and they want to up their game pun intended, and needed bigger formats, newer formats. So they moved me and my family to London, to St. John's Wood, which was very nice. And, you know, crazy Sony money in those days because the kids, two kids had to go to the American school in London, which was not cheap, uh, especially with the same time Christopher Columbus was there, not the you know land pioneer, the Harry Potter guy. And he was there yeah. with his kids. It's, a, it's quite a pricey place. But their remit was to find us big formats. So the first one I found was a Swedish format, uh, for a gentleman by the name of Gunnar Vetterberg. It was called Russian Roulette. And basically, contestants, they answered the question wrong. They would have to pull a lever or lever, and uh, the floor would either open or and they would go down, bye-bye, or they would stay and they stay in the game. It sort of inspired a format years later called Still Standing from Armosa Formats, wink, wink, Avi. And, uh, but we, that was, we said, okay, we're going to go out and put like gangbusters, and Spain was the first. And this was a paper format. We'd only done a pilot at the Mexico City Sony facility just to, but it was, was put together with duct tape and tweezers. But all of a sudden, we had all these countries that wanted to do the show. And so we launched it. I We did, I want to say, four episodes on ITV. And this must have been 2002. So we did Russian Roulette. And then the big thing happened where I'm meeting with Nippon Television, Yoko Takashima. And I'm pitching... Arts, arts, art, Sony shows, the Wheel of Fort, the Dating Game, Pyramid, Newlywood Game, Gong Show. Not doing my research, thinking that Japan was had done these kind of shows twenty years earlier and probably set the contestants on fire. And uh, so then I did something you we kind of forget about in our in our business of, in, and communication is I asked a question, and listened. I, I said, Yoko, I said, does Nippon have formats? And they said, Yeah, we just launching the show. Tiger's Money, we launched in the experimental time period. We're going to call it Dragon's Den. 
And she said, would you like to see it? She told me about it and it just sparked me. And then I saw it. And for those who haven't seen it, it is a riot because it was literally shot in a conference room at Nippon Studios and Nippon Television in Tokyo. There was no props. There was no set design. It was a conference table, pitcher of water, a pot of coffee, and a flip chart. That was it. And the five dragons would walk into the room, open up their briefcases, put up the stacks of yen, and then have each drag to each participant do their pitch. And there was the extreme close-ups, but it was for us, it was like it was like watching cable access television in the in the 80s. It was so primitive. But the point of the show was it was about people who had a dream, an idea. So we take that tape, I, we did the deal, I did the deal with, with Yoko on a cocktail napkin, that's how old school this was, at the old Noga Hilton in, uh, in, in, in Cannes, and we did the deal, then I show it to our Sony group of executives, we had a retreat somewhere, and it was our international executive, so it was the head of Spain and Germany and France, and so it wasn't a bunch of narrow-minded American big-budget producers, but they looked at their 27 of us or so in the room, they looked at this the trailer, and their mouths were to the floor. And they're just shocked. And I remember the president of, of Sony International at the time, Michael Grindon, and said, well, who's going to watch a business show? And by the way, this is before Apprentice. And Paul's uh, and my response was, this is not a business show. This is a show about dreams. You've had this dream, this idea, uh, this your whole life. Now is your chance to be in front of these four or five, whatever many you want, um, dragons that can possibly make your dream come true. It's about aspiration. And then, of course, we it, but it still took three years from the time we acquired it at Sony till it got made it on to BBC Two uh, in 2005, 2006, yeah, still going. And then it became to Canada, CBC with Julie Bristow. I think Nigeria did a version in between. But meanwhile, in America, Phil, an American producer, Phil Gurren, had the shopping rights to it and he was pitching it like everywhere and every anyhow he simply could not get a sale uh finally in 2007 2008 sony does a deal with mark burnett and mark burnett wants to do an american version of this british show dragon's den the belief is that he wasn't even sure and most people don't realize that the show originally you know originated in japan and so often went to the races and now sony i think at its peak had it's in 43 different countries and that led to us my wife colleen and i starting our business in 2005. After Sony, I went to Fox International, did such high-quality shows like Joe Millionaire, uh, Simple Life, my big obnoxious fiance, <laughs> all over the world. Uh, but Nippon, the broadcaster who created uh, Dragon's Den, asked us to um, to look into their library for some other formats. And we go, oh, so that's how we started Small World International Format Television in 2005 with a paying client. And then Viasat, this, the European station group, Todd Latucci, uh, was running that. He brought us in to, 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 for the other side of it to help improve some of the productions in the Scandi and the Baltic territories. And that's how we were off to the races in 2005. We, had, we took through the Japan Library and Joe Mace uh, told the story at MEPCOM last year, which I completely forgot. God bless him for, for bringing it up. But we there was a segment in a Japanese show, and it was basically the Chinese whips, whispers or telephone game, whichever, however you grew up as a kid. And I pulled that segment out. We created a show around that. And um, Joe was the one who spearheaded it, and it was called Copycat in the UK. Um, we also, which is really relevant and, and interesting now, hopefully, is that we took the format old enough 
that is a huge hit on Netflix now. But in 2009, we sold it to Katie Thorogood at North One. And she partnered with, uh, brought in Chris Tarrant. And they did it uh, for UK TV, uh, Tarrant Let's the Kids Loose. And it was what Old Enough is now, taking kids. And they're going on their first chore, their first errand, their first adventure. Unbeknownst to them, there's a camera crew following them. So there's a safety net, although people look at me and go, you really think people on a camera crew are a safety net? I go, okay, for what it's worth, I'll give you that. But we had pitched that everywhere in the U.S. and everybody loved it, loved it, loved it. But they said, there's no way legal will ever let us do this. We can't put something like this on television. We fast forward to the last year and Netflix buys the Japanese episodes. Huge hit on Netflix. That has now led to a rebirth, a renaissance of old enough being commissioned as, a, as, a, as, as an actual format in countries. So it's interesting how... You know, something that was from 13 years ago, and that's why I always tell people we are in a marathon of a business, not a sprint. And then uh, our biggest, most recent woman, you mentioned Grandpa's Over Flowers, going back to me uh, not having any kind of real strategy in mind, but just having that feeling and the happenstance, serendipity. We go to South Korea and uh, visiting my daughter who was teaching there, uh, third graders. And she said, dad, my third graders are talking about this show, Grandpa's Over Flowers. I go, what the heck is that? She says, oh, they take these four old timer Korean legend actors and they set them on this bucket list trip with a limited budget and limited resources. And they did it in France. So I go, okay, that sounds interesting. I'll back, go back to again, the universe serendipity, I go back to my room that night turn on the TV, flick around and say, this sort of looks like what she just talked about. The next morning I go meet with CJ E&M, which were not really in the national format business at that time at all. And in the lobby is a big cardboard blowout of grandpa's over flowers in Korean and English. I go, okay, I get the message, God. I know, I know what I'm supposed to do here. So <laughs> I leave that afternoon, go to the airport, go to Incheon airport, call Paul Taligdi, who is a, uh, heading up NBC Alternative at the time, thank God he had the the open-mindedness and the cultural awareness. He'd studied in Korea, studied in Japan. And from Incheon Airport, I presented to him, and thank God he said yes. But one of the interesting things was, as I'm on my Zoom call with him, well, no, it wasn't Zoom then, whatever the hell it was. And all of it was Skype, it was, oh, I guess. Skype, oh my God. If it was a video call, oh it would have been Skype. Skype. Jesus, boy, did somebody drop the ball on that. Skype, and then the, 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 it went out for a second. I go, oh shit, I lost him. And he comes back and says, no, no, no. He says, I'm here. I just went online. I'm reading all the blogs about grandpas over flowers. And he said something that stuck with me, which I reminded him a month later. He said, you know what I love about this show? Everything I'm reading is making me smile. I go, hmm, that's a going to stay with that. A month later, come to Los Angeles. We're meeting with the NBC people, Paul and his team, Enrique and everybody. And he's kind of hemming and hawing. And I said, Paul, do you remember what you told me about the show when I spoke to you from the airport in, in South Korea? He says, no, mate. That's my Paul Tuligdi accent, by the way. Uh, I said, no, mate. I said, I, I, I asked you uh, when we thought we had, we had a, uh, lost, lost you on the phone. And uh, you said, you know what I love about this show? Everything is making me smile. And then he, <laughs> if anyone knows Paul, you know, he's kind of tall. He just slaps his legs and goes, that's it, mate. Business Affairs is calling you on Monday. We're doing the show. And um, I was with Lucy Burnley, who was working with us. This was her first trip to L.A., her first trip for a network meeting. We leave the meeting, and she says, if Lucy's listening, sorry, Lucy, I'll try to give you the best impression. Um, Lucy says, kind of looks at me and goes, well, that ain't quite so hard selling a show to a U.S. network. And I, I'm like, 
Um, but it was it was just it was like one of those weird serendipitous things that it all came together to have Lucy there have this experience. But again, it still took it was cast contingent, which then I had to go because CJ and M were not in the format business then. Explain to them what cast contingent mean, what all the American verbiage and, and, and everything else means and the, and the phrases that just don't make any sense. The jargon, that's the word I'm searching for. And so anyway, we ended up moving forward and they went through three years of casting and we finally ended up, they changed the title to Better Late Than Never in um, 2018, uh, 2017. And the cast was Henry Winkler, William Shatner, two American legends that most a lot of the British audiences know, especially Henry Winkler, who's very active in the UK and popular, and who doesn't love Captain Kirk. Uh, George Foreman, the world uh, heavyweight champion and an American footballer and broadcaster and actor, Terry Bradshaw, and the four of them, we sent them to Asia. The second season, they went to Europe, but then we licensed it to 13 other countries who did their version. Israel did a female cast and a male cast for the second season. So that really helped us grow. And that was our most monumental thing since about seven years earlier, we had a show called I Survived a Japanese Game Show on ABC for two seasons that we keep trying to get on in the UK because, my goodness, I would just love to have Graham Norton and his team do that. Very fish out of water. And that tends to be our specialty. The commonality here is obviously your Asia, essentially, is where you've obviously gone and and discovered these formats and and brought them and sold them throughout the world. What is it about Asia that seems to be able to create these incredible formats? And we've we've seen in recent years a new Korean wave of the masked singer and the K-pop phenomenon a couple of years ago. So there's you know there's huge amounts of creativity. And now I think thanks to a lot of the global streamers a lot of international execs or or certainly US execs and maybe also more more so UK execs are willing to they're willing to take a chance on a format from a territory that is perhaps a non-traditional format territory I think it's the open the blank page I guess I can never do stuff on a computer I guess blank page uh, whatever the new synonym for that is uh, but it, there's much more of a blank page and because they produce so much, they also they tend to, to take risk and they stick with them. And I don't think until I just thought of that into the last 20 seconds, because they don't do a lot of reruns, especially in Japan. So they give a show time to build and find its audience and is something that, well, we're doing a little bit better in the U.S. now and then most other countries are. But we went through a period know, 15 years ago where if something didn't perform in two episodes, out it goes. They, get, they allow the producers the creativity and the time to get things going. Uh, even Dragon's Dead. I mean, that was – they produced 24, 26 episodes in an experimental time period. So on Saturday nights, I think at 1130, I believe. So they were allowing they, – they dedicated a certain time – for as you know, the clue is in the title, uh, Sherlock Holmes, it's experimental yeah. time hour. We are going to try things. And if something clicks, great. Uh, you know, those segments that we pulled out of existing Japanese shows like Old Enough, a Silent Library was a segment in the long running Japanese comedy show that we saw. And I said, "Ooh, let's create a show around that segment. And South Korea has also done a terrific job. Um, I'm glad we were there at the beginning because better late than never, Grandpa's Overflowers was the first 
Korean format ever sold into the U.S. And then uh, we are the, the little engine that could. And then we feel like after we put a little flag in a territory, then the biggies end up following us and you know, throwing money and everything else. And then we kind of get lost in the shuffle. But when we, we find something, we stick with it. I mean, even the Sony Dragon's Den, that took three years, as I said, better late than never three years. We had that I Survived a Japanese Game Show, which was just a one-sheet piece of paper called Big in Japan from a British producer and a Danish producer. David and Karsten at Babyfoot. And it, the idea was we're going to take 10 Westerners, plop them in Tokyo. They appear, they go on cultural adventures, and they appear on a crazy Japanese game show. And each week somebody is sent home. Easiest pitch ever. But that was just a one-sheet piece of paper. And this is how times have changed. And that was 2008. That one-sheet piece of paper sold to John Sade at ABC. He said, let's do this. And we didn't have a production company attached. John and I had to find a production company to do it. And then, but the, the craziest thing is we left that meeting, that sale, with us retaining international format rights on a paper format. It's like, there's not a chance in hell that would happen today. I mean, even if you go in with this, like, better late grandpa's over flowers, that had been on the air for two years. We were still battling NBC legal about, well, who's going to handle the international format rights? And But we le- that we love, that's just like an impossible thing. But anyway, so I think Coca, South Korea saw what was happening with Japan. And there are two things, you know, especially Americans, we tend to generalize and stereotype uh, so much. And the stereotype is that, oh, Asian, they lump all of Asia together. And that's just simply not the case. As anybody, as anyone know, China operates politically, socially, economically, uh, so much different than the, than the Koreans. But I think the one area that Japan was very difficult one as a whole was getting a deal done, getting the business affairs done. And you kind of always had to wait for the other shoe to drop. That happened with Simon Library. And it's like, well, you go along, you go along, you get a deal, and then there's a surprise. So I think... Somehow, Korea was watching this. They created COCA, which was basically a consortium, uh, much like Pact UK. Uh, yay Don, yay Don, uh, Pact UK, but it was with Korean producers and broadcasters promoting creativity in South Korea. And now you see it with um, Japan. They were trying to do something with this treasure box and then another organization that just popped up called Beige, B-E-A-G, which is trying to promote Japan. Like, yes, we are creative and now we know how to get stuff done. So there's, those are the two things. It's like, it's really creative, but it's impossible to do a deal. So if you can get both of those things working and uh, yeah, for some reason we had, uh, we've been doing a lot of Asian shows the, the, the Thailand show, show called Fan Pante. We did a version in the UK fanatics uh, for sky TV yeah, so that that so that that's that's my deal on the Asian market, but it's becoming more competitive, and I think we are in the spot of saying where else in Asia um, has people have people not looked that will not spend the time. We also feel that about Latin America. I feel like South America is a place that there's a lot of creativity, but getting business done there is difficult. You totally, truly need to be on the ground in person, face to face. So coming back to Dragon's Den, do you think? The Apprentice would ever have been made if it wasn't for Dragon's Den? I think it would have because they were in the development phase. It seemed they were on parallel paths as far as timeline. And so I think it would happen. But I think Apprentice fed off the success of Dragon's Den. 
So I suppose that indirectly, Tim, you're responsible for Donald Trump's rise. Oh, to God, Justin, Justin. <laughs> here I thought I loved you. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I had to do that. Well, I've been saving that up for the last five minutes, Tim. So what's the one new format that you're working on right now that you're more excited about than anything else? Um, well, cue the drums, Ringo. We have... <laughs> Thank you. We have a format that we'll tease because we want to do a proper launch, but I can hand on Bible or my stack of Elton John records. We have found a format that I found three years ago, and it's from a major territory, and they have done 47 seasons of this show, still going, over 700 episodes. There's a two-year waiting list to be on the show. And just those three headlines warrant a barista at a coffee house about five weeks ago. My wife, Colleen, and I were talking about, oh, you know, when we do the trailer, it's going to, the head, the graphics are going to be over 700 episodes, 47 seasons, two year waiting list, and the barista behind the counter with having no clue what our subject was leaned over the counter and goes, what show are you guys talking about? And it happens to be a music variety game show from South Africa, but. It's the first format ever, ever exported from SABC, which is why it has taken three years. I spotted it three years ago. When I contacted SABC, their response was, well, we're not really interested in the international revenue and the market. And I'm, I can be verbose in many ways. At that point there, I was speechless. I said, uh, uh, I don't know what to say to that. I don't know how to respond. Stayed on my radar screen, persistence, serendipity. Uh, and I always say that the four P's in life, which are at least for our businesses, have the passion, have the persistence, have the patience. And the fourth P is, but just don't piss anybody off. Uh, cause any one of those can be out of whack and you're going to be bugging the crap out of somebody. Oh my God. No, that's not that other guy asked, contacted me about the idol. Forget it. Uh, you can just piss people off. So I went to MIP Africa in Cape Town. It was the first MIP Africa and the chance to be there. And again, there's always a family factor with me. Our son and his wife, um, she's from South Africa, had a baby. And so it was my excuse to, okay, if well, you guys are going to be in Cape Town, I'm going to find any reason to create business in Cape Town in South <laughs> Africa. So I spoke at the conference. I met this uh, woman from SABC, Shalini, and we turned it around from, no, this is, we're not interested in the international marketplace to, we close the deal on this. The Monday night of MIP, whatever date that was. So um, it doesn't matter what the date was, April 17th. And, but that took three years of persistence, eight years, eight months of patience, because again, SABC had not done exported a format before. They've imported. They've had, I believe they've done Strictly Come Dancing, and I think they did Dragon's Den years ago too, but they've never imported a format. So just Again, knowing, learning the language and the terms and all, all of that just took a while, but having the patience. And so we were hoping to be our big, massive uh, launch at MIP, but we, we, we did, I did not want to rush this. Okay. And what's the title of the, this show then? Um, the, the, Ameri- the Western title is Note for Note, and I would give it to you in Afrikaans. But uh, my Afrikaans, and even I t- practiced last yesterday morning with a friend from South Africa, but it's Nut Renut. I am probably totally mispronouncing that. The Afrikaans language is much like Dutch. So from our Dutch friends, you know, nonsensical. And uh, 
but it was uh, it's it's just a monster music. For when I when I heard those numbers, I go and two year three years ago when I heard it, it was forty four seasons, and I go, how is there a show? <laughs> and I don't know many shows, period, that have been around for forty some seasons. But um, forget the category. Oh. And but this is a view musical game variety show, fast paced. Uh, there's certainly lots of music shows out there. Don't forget the lyrics, name that tune, and they all kind of have a certain style. This one here is an amalgamation of so much, and it moves. So fast, and over 700 episodes, they probably have a library, not probably, they have a menu of about 225 different games. So you've got a killer track record, you've got a, uh, terrific ratings, it's interactive, it has all those, all, those, all those headlines, those bullet points you want in a format, which means <laughs> it has everything that a format buyer should want, which, and then the response is going to be, nah, we're not looking for that. But no, I, I told, because you always think like when, you get those network needs. ITV2 is looking for this. You say, yeah, I have that format. It's social experiment. Yeah, I have that. It's weekly. Yep, it's it's nightly, kind of a little edgy. And you tick all the boxes. You go in to present them, and it's like, no, we don't really want that. And that's why we say buyers don't know what they want. Are you actually actively going out and picking this? We are going out, and this is you are the first person we are talking about, and we are you know we're going to be begin begin the marketing and the whole more of the details. So this right. is kind of a tease. The details to come, but we will announce this probably at a cl- close to the end of May, the beginning of June, and we'll get the more details in, in about the show and um, how buyers out there can buy the biggest format that's going to come that has come down the pipeline in many a years. I know that sounds like hyperbole, but been doing this a while, and there are not many times you come across something that's been around forty-seven seasons. You go, yeah, they figured it out. They're they're doing something right. That's great. You heard it here first. We'll uh, keep our eyes peeled for more news. On all of those international deals, you're going to be uh, clinching, Tim, over the next the next few months of the year. Finally, before we come on to talk about your story of the week, this is something that I'd asked Adrian Wolf, uh, who was involved with Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, for a number of years when he was at Celador, and we were talking about you know over the last few years there haven't been those huge international you know, breakout format hits in the way that there were a a number of years ago. You mentioned a a couple of the big names, but probably Masked Singer is one of the most recent ones that has done real international business. The other one is Traitors, which over the past couple of months. But just trying to uh, understand why that is the case. Why aren't there those huge 100-plus territory rollouts happening anymore i think we don't need it we don't need that massive the i mean before that i think the voice was really the before as you did you you rightly said before the mass singer which we had a a hand in that making happen by the way under the table uh legally by the way there was nothing unethical going on under the table unless you've seen the the movie shampoo with warren Beatty, but that's a whole other thing uh but uh you know i think because the market has become so much sophisticated, and I don't care if it's – we do a lot of work in Ukraine, but and we've been doing it for a while. But Romania, uh, Brazil, I think that is such an even playing field that other countries and territories are less reliant on – we're waiting for the next big thing to come down from Banerjee. We're waiting for the next big thing to come down from Fremantle. 
a lot of countries are doing their own thing and they're because they have learned i mean in ukraine one of the reasons we've been there is we just have such a connection there but 13 years ago before the crimean war they were the top five importer formats and so their producers, they were knowing how to produce internationally, not American, you know, overproduced, overstaffed, overpriced. But they knew how to produce internationally because they were producing all yeah. these international formats. The war happens, the economy goes to hell, and nobody's buying. So they said, well, let's reinvent ourselves. We know how to produce. Why can't we create formats? And that started a major you know, exporting of Ukraine formats. Then, of course, Russia attacks Ukraine. and that, that, that But, but to sh- to get politically and socially, I know you're you're a political junkie, and in a good way. How Ukraine responded to what happened to them 13 years ago, and how their resilience is now in you know, turning your television business around versus live thousands and all lives is a, drastically different. But there's something about the resilience in Ukraine that that just says, okay, this, this is the game plan. We're going to re- figure it out. And I think globally that has happened where everybody's producing. And I've always said, even before I just maybe had that epiphany, is that, hey, you know, using an American uh, analogy, uh, baseball, it's great to hit a home run. It's great to hit that big that ball that goes over the fence and you you surround all the bases and woo, 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 woo. But you know what? You can do really well just being consistent at doubles and triples. Uh, that big home run happens every now and then. But boy, if you can deliver something that – my goodness, if you're getting a show that you're getting 200 episodes a year uh, 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 on an order, no, it's not The Voice. No, it's not Mass Singer. But damn it, it's consistent. It's volume. It's volume. It's volume. And I know James uh, was saying in the recent podcast that um, from Aragon, Argonon, Argonon, when I get that wrong, Argonon, he, he said we worked so hard to get the renewal. And you want that renewal, right? You want to be, you don't, we put so much time in the, the development, the, the pre-production, the production, and it goes on the air, and then you're kind of on to something else. Like, well, get that freaking renewal if you can get the volume. So I think in a concise way, hopefully, is I think the playing field creatively, territories are less reliant on the big one coming down. They know they can produce their own big ones, and we're seeing it happen. We haven't seen it. So I think there's been a boom in that area. And now it's time for Story of the Week, where my guests get to choose their TV industry news stories from the past seven days. Tim, what's your story of the week? So my story of the week is it's top of the headlines for all of us in our business, all over the world, the entertainment business, but the Writers Guild strike. And it's been quite a few years since they've had a strike. I I don't have the tarot cards and the tea leaves in front of me, but I do feel like it's just going to be a long, drawn-out one. And I have just been following – I wish I had the intelligence – to be more specific about what IA is, but even the people that have that have AI, dyslexic for those, that have created AI are now backing away from it because just, everybody is so scared. Yesterday, President Biden and his team met with uh, biggies from Google and all the companies like, do you realize how dangerous this possibly can be? And I read between, between the weekend and the Drake story of somebody went in and went through AI, just created a song. That could have been Drake and The Weeknd. But then the, I think the, the more interesting story that affects all of us is the Michael Schumacher uh, story from a couple weeks ago where some German magazine published a front page story, an exclusive with my interview with Michael Schumacher. Well, Michael is, has been retired and is not in good health ever since his, he doesn't do these things. Well, it turns out it was an interview that was all fabricated by AI. 
And that's freaking scary. And so now you look at how it's going to affect the movie and the television business. And boy, I remember when Polar Express came out, if anybody remembers that, that movie with Robert Zemeckis, and everybody was worried about how they did it wasn't that wasn't the animated the, the CGI and everything they did that they could actually replace actors. Mm-hmm. And yes, it was a Tom Hanks likeness, but you didn't need him in there. And 13 years later, we are at the new frontier where will we will we need actors? In the music business through AI, you could have a whole new catalog of Elvis Presley material and nobody would know the difference. Well, what about AI created formats then? Surely that is perfect for AI development, you know, and uh, the application of AI. Absolutely. And we are, we've been toying around with a couple things. We had, well, we have a couple formats in the hologram space that basically you can bring, as we know with holograms, you can bring back anybody. So you could, you could absolutely, and I know Fox Tribe was, was ambitious with a format. They, uh, um, I'm drawing a blank on the title now that they tried last year. And uh, there's a couple other ones, AI, AI ones. And yeah, in the big picture, you know, everybody's looking at money. And that's the only concern. It's not really, that's what, the, that's what they're fighting with the WGA and the, and the studios. It's a money issue. And so if actors and writers... And, and even producers, we, we don't need talent. We can all do, create these things AI. And I don't know how many shows I've been pitched recently that have AI technology, but it's a we're we've always said like the streaming world in the last few years has been the wild west. This is wild west world. This is really really scary. And uh, you know, and, and there's things you can control and things you can't. And how's it going to get out of hand? I think the writer strike aspect. I mean, it's obviously not just about AI. No, it's, it is, yeah. a, it, it is a, a kind of key. As you say, a bit of a watershed moment. And I think, you know, looking back to the writer's strike of 2007, that really had a massive impact, didn't it? You know, a lot of big budget movies and other shows were either shelved or delayed quite significantly. But presumably, we're going to start getting into a lot of airspace needs filling. You know, we've got the late night shows that are going to be the first ones uh, and are the first ones that have been affected. But as we get deeper into this you're going to see networks making unusual buying patterns are going to start to develop and they're going to be looking for lots of content so essentially is it going to be reality it's presumably going to be unscripted but reality is going to benefit from this do you think uh, you know I, I i need to go right now i've got the call i got the, all the networks calling me right now demanding uh, needing unscripted formats <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that it's not funny but in 2000 we benefited from that because we, the I Survived a Japanese Game Show, was rushed into schedule because the writer strike happened, and all of a sudden they needed programming, and so we've got a couple things that we're talking to. Yeah, so it does benefit us, even though when we say unscripted, they're going to need hours to fill. And I saw something. Oh my god, I can't remember where it's on. I don't know if it's on C twenty one or K seven. Something about that there were the the unscripted in the last year. I want to say March or May from last year to April. It was, uh, there were 230, 240, I'm going to get my facts straight on this, fewer unscripted commissions to begin with mm. uh, just in the last year. So we kind of look at like, okay, well, all these streamers, all these opportunities, they've got to have a demand for content, blah, 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 blah. But then you see that number and you go, so where the hell was it going? Hopefully, and hopefully I, I side with the writers, but they, there are there is going to be a need for hours to fill, and 
it kind of creates a, a new window. And then it, all of a sudden you have new opportunities, new genres. Maybe the networks will take some more risk. I know at, at MIP, Fox was uh, the unscripted with Alison Wallach and Natalie Vogue. Their their mandate there has worked out pretty well and announcing these commissions, in, you know, new show commissions in France and Germany. So I get this feeling networks have seen this coming and they've already been, I don't know how many of them have been prepared. Like right, we better do something different. And I don't know if it's more hub type projects where we can do that series based in Brussels and UK comes in for three weeks followed by us, you know, the budgetary constraints. Does it feel like it's organic? Do you need to be there? But I know the networks, at least in the U S are looking at more hub type productions. They are really trying to reduce cost and now they're going to really have to amp it up. This strike keeps on going, which I have a feeling it's going to. Yeah. Well, in any crisis, there is an opportunity. So I'm sure yes. we've, yeah, we learned, we, we learned that in COVID, yeah, you know, that's... out of crisis comes creativity, right? That's very true. That's very true. Now, Tim, it's time for your hero of the week and get in the bin. So first of all, who's your hero? My hero is being a Ed Sheeran fan and being a, a lifetime music fan is I was happy to see the result yesterday and I was actually ecstatic. Our judicial system in this country, it's so – <laughs> that was horrific. It was my – you just don't know. You don't know what the jury was going to come back with. And I never it had never occurred to me that this that his song was 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 even reminiscent of "Let's Get It On" by Marvin Gaye. So back to a little bit of controlling the IP, and uh, you know Led Zeppelin was involved in that case years ago. So I was happy that Ed Sheeran won it, and to testament to him, he was there. And I think from one of the analysis I read, I think his performance, quote unquote, performance on the stand really impressed the jurors on how there's just a few basic chords of every song and any, you know, from there, any song can be extrapolated. Yeah. And so kudos to him. And when he, <laughs> yeah, she scared my wife and I go, and he said, you know, if he loses this case, he's going to quit the music business. And we go, we haven't seen him in concert yet. Damn it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With perfect timing, his uh, new album is out as well. So, uh, you know, let's not think that it's a PR opportunity to uh, promote his new album. Amen. Fortuitous marketing. Yeah. There we are. What about going in your bin this week, Tim? Who or what is going in the bin? Uh, I just, I have to say, it, it, it's guns. And in I don't know how much it gets into the political social consciousness of the world, because I know yours is an international podcast. But it has to be, I, this morning, reading the New York Times, two, well, there's a show shooting in Serbia, um, not, to, not to minimize that, but Two more shootings in, in, in the last few days. And this country has become so freaking numb to it. And I just, it's embarrassing, isn't the polite best word to describe. But how is it that we can go along and we can just expect this in this country? And supposedly we are this, what every, you know, everybody wants to be. Well, well, our judicial system is what it wants to be. Political system, you, got, you know, UK has your own own issues there. But when it comes to guns, it has to be the most insipid immoral, unethical, it's not a question of right versus left or religion, although they wanted to make it that, but I just can't imagine it's, it's scary. I now have an 18 month old granddaughter. I have a, I have a nine year old granddaughter. And to know that for in our country, that for people under 18, the number one cause of death is, is gun violence. My Lord, uh, when you send those kids off to school and I, I am going to get on my soapbox here, but it's just, it's disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. And I, I know how we will not that how we are viewed by the world should be so important, but it's got to be, 
God, we don't get we don't understand America. We just don't understand America's obsession with this, you know, that we have our sort of Second Amendment. Well, yeah, you're, you're not defending yourself against a well-regulated militia there. Uh, anyway, I, but that's the thing. It just gets so sickening and it becomes numb. I mean, re- re- referring to Ukraine, I know the American media has become numb. You don't see anything that's on nearly the front page of the top story. And now all this gun violence, it's just an accidental shooting. Somebody goes in here, somebody's complaining about a neighbor's firing off his AK-47. So he goes, gets his AK-47 and goes and kills all, you know, five of the neighbors. One is a mother and a father of two young kids. It's just, uh, uh, anyway, so it's, it's sickening, sickening. Nearly 14,000 people have been killed in the U.S. in 2023. Yeah. Uh, incredible stat. We're not even halfway through the year yet. And, and it just, it, it, there's nothing they can do. Yeah, 184 shootings so far this year. But the, the the gun lobby is so strong, presumably, that nothing yep. is ever going to uh, change, right? No, and it is. It, it, it's about the money. It's about that's the NRA buys the politicians, mostly the Republicans. But how in the world can anybody make any justification that somebody needs to walk into a store, buy an AK-47, and the one – they're all blending together, sadly. But the one two weeks – the person legitimately went into the store, I believe, it was in Florida – and bought the gun, and then a not a gun, an AK forty seven, an assault rifle uh, that shoots hundreds of rounds in seconds. What purpose? You're not going to go out there and go hunting. And I know the hunters hang on to their rifles, and God be with them. I don't get it, but there is no reason anybody needs an AK forty seven to take out police officers wearing bulletproof vests to take out kids, our future, and teachers that are trying their best to raise our children into the future for them to have to go to work each day in fear uh, that they're going to be killed that day at school. It's just, ah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's my soap. I think everybody who's listening to the show will uh, wholeheartedly agree that guns can go into the bin. Thank you very much for that tip. And I'm going to tag it on with one thing on the guns and, and that's relevant or not. I thought it was interesting that Steven Spielberg said a week ago or two weeks ago that he now regrets digitizing the guns out of E.T. I don't know if you caught that story, but he now regrets because uh, whenever they had some DVD release, whatever, 18 years ago, they replaced the guns in the um, FBI agent's hands with walkie-talkies uh-huh. or something. And he just said two weeks ago he regrets doing that because that was – it goes on to the book burning and everything else going on in America. But it's he's, his statement was something to the lines of – it's that movie was a reflection of its time and its era. You can't go, you can't yeah. change things. And that goes to what's going on with books and television. So that'll be part two of the telecast with what's pissing Tim off. All right. <laughs> well, when you get some sales for uh, note for notes, Tim, let us know and you can uh, come back on and we'll have another, you know, we'll chew the fat. You got it. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm great. I'm so happy to have met you. And uh, thank you, Carrie Lewis Brown, for picking up our drinks at your and K7, picking up our drinks at your soiree in, in Cannes, and just a pleasure, and, and keep on doing this. I am I feel badly that I'm late to the party, but I'm trying my best to catch up, and as I said, I've got a huge lawn, so when I'm three hours on a riding lawnmower, this is my best time to catch up with you. <laughs> Great. All right, Tim. Well, uh, well, there you go. You'll be you'll be on the, on the show, on your lawnmower next there week. There you go. <laughs> Great to speak to you. Tim Crescenti from Small World, thank you so much indeed. We'll see you very soon. That's all for another week's show. As always, thanks a lot for listening. Telecast was edited by Ian Chambers and recorded in London. We'll see you next week. Until then, stay safe.